Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Mahatma Gandhi said, those who believe religion and politics aren't connected don't understand either. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm pleased to welcome Daniel Statman to the show today to talk about his important and timely book, State and Religion in Israel, a Philosophical Legal Inquiry. Professor Daniel Statman is chair of the philosophy department at the University of Haifa and specializes in ethics and political philosophy. Daniel Statman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Before we talk about your book, Danny, I'd like to ask my guests to tell us something about themselves. So tell us about who or what in your life had a strong influence on your intellectual development. Um, well, first, let me just clarify that the book is co-authored with my friend, uh, Professor Gidi Sapir from the Law School of Bailan University. Um, now, as to your question, I think uh, the most significant uh, intellectual influence on me was by Yeshayahu Leibovitch. I'm going back maybe 45 years or so, maybe more. Um, I once um, happened to see a poster about a forthcoming lecture by Leibovitch at Barilan. I, I had, hadn't known the name before. I was just 16 years old. And I, I by the topic, I thought to myself, this sounds like an interesting talk. Maybe I should go to it. And I indeed I did. And it kind of changed my life. I mean, it was it was very inspiring, intellectually stimulating, and I think that's what got me into philosophy. What was it about him that was so impactful? He was very he was very sharp in his arguments, um, really kind of provocative. Um, while listening to him, you always need to think about you know. Uh, what would I say? Do I have any answer to that? Um, could I could I offer a better argument and so on? 
um, also he kind of um, he went against the the mainstream um, then um, in the religious circles in which I, I grew up. Um, so it was always very, you know, very fascinating and, and thought-provoking. Well, we could talk about Yeshayahu Leibowitz for a long time because he also impacted me when I was in high school. But we'll try to avoid that because the topic today is your and Gideon Sapir's book. So the yeah, relationship way, between... It's not, it's not altogether unrelated because for, for years... Under the influence of Leibovitch, I was I was sure that a kind of an authentic, a committed liberal must support separation of state and religion, uh, which is also kind of um, entailed by one's religious beliefs. If you take Leibovitch's line, and it took it took me it took me years. Kind of to release myself from this Leibovitch line, um, and to really go against his view here. Right, he ha- he has the had the black and white thinking, the absolutist thinking, that I think is especially appealing to uh, young people. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So let's turn to your book, the uh, the relationship between religion and state is very complex, and viewed globally, it lies on a continuum from about 40% of the countries in the world that ban certain religions outright, to those that restrict certain religious activities, to those that favor or prefer certain religions. Tell us about that continuum and where Israel fits on it. Yeah, so the, the continuum uh, this continuum is around uh, two axes. One concerns the question of religious freedom, of freedom of religion, and the other concerns the question of um, support um, for religion versus separation. Um, so, I mean, there, there are some some countries who favor one religion and uh, discriminate against others in in all kinds of ways, restricting the religious liberty of certain groups. Um, There are countries that uh, respect the religious freedom of of all citizens, but think that the the state shouldn't support um, any religious cause, especially not fund any, any religious cause, um, um, Israel is interesting because Israel, on the one hand, is is, is a country where the the state is deeply involved in religious issues. It is um, supported. It funds um, synagogues as well as mosques and churches and so on, and religious schools and so on. Um, but on the, on the other hand, it also respects the religious uh, freedom of all citizens. So is the relationship between those two concepts uh, an uneasy relationship? Uh, separation of church and state and religious freedom, is there uh, a contradictory relationship to them at times, or do they coexist easily? So at, at times there might be some tension, but um, um, of course not, ne- not necessarily. You need, to, you need to balance them. Um, 
So the, the challenge when you talk about support is the challenge of, of equality. Okay, so given that in, in most countries, almost all countries in the world, there's more than one religion, then once the state starts supporting one religion, um, usually the religion of the, the majority, the, there's the question of um, whether it offers similar um, um, support for the minority religions as well. So this, of course, is a, a great challenge in Israel too. So in Israel, when people talk about state and religion um, issues, um, they think almost exclusively about the Jewish religion. <laughs> um, while, while, while the question is, is larger, of course, um, and it, it took time for the the government um, officers uh, offices and also for the for the courts to really understand that y- you can't um, give to Jewish religious co- causes without also giving to Muslim or Christian or whatever um, religious causes. Okay, so that's that's the challenge when you talk about. Um, support, but th- th- there's no, in principle, um, contradiction between, on the one hand, supporting, equally supporting um, various religious groups, and making making sure that individuals belonging to any religious group w- would be able to practice their religious rituals w- with no interference and no disturbance by the state, which is the, the kind of the essence of religious freedom. The thing is that even 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 states um, that um, support a separation, a full or close to full separation between state and religion, can and actually um, should and usually do um, respect the religious freedom of their citizens. In in a sense, um, you could see the following the following way. So it's as if the the, the state says to um, it's religious citizens uh, that qua religious, um, I mean the religious institutions and practices and so on, they can get no support from the state. However, uh, to, to in a sense compensate for that, I mean compensate for the fact that the religious interests um, or needs are not accommodated by the state, to compensate by that, the state grants them a special protection to their um, religious life, and this this special protection comes in the in the guise of the right to religious freedom. So th- this this right uh, means that religion gets a special protection more than other kinds of activities or institutions. Okay, so so in in, in that case, uh, in that sense, in. in um, Religious uh, um, individuals, um, on the whole, are treated fairly by the state. Why is the issue of religion and state uh, different in Judaism than Christianity, and therefore different for Israel than for European and other liberal democracies? No, I'm not sure how different it is in terms of the um, fundamental moral political questions so 
I could I could see um, um, a a request from you know a churches in some European country to be funded uh, by the state. Um, think of think of a country like Greece. I think something like maybe ninety eight percent or ninety seven percent. The very high percentage of of Greek are, are Greek, belong to the Greek Orthodox um, Church. So it, it would make sense for um, for Greece as a country to support the church. Um, support, I mean, not only uh, both symbolically and also materially. It, it would make sense. So the questions that uh, apply uh, that I, I mentioned earlier about uh, the uh, equal support of one really one group um, in comparison to other groups, and questions of uh, religious freedom and so on. I think they would apply in Christian context as as well. It it is it is true that um, Judaism is such a religion that has a, a lot of practices. <laughs> so um, these, these many many practices, um, religious practices, um, would mean that there are more areas where a um, Jews would. Ask for some kind of help, help, support, funding, and so on from the state, and B that issues of religious freedom might come up. So I think it's more a matter of uh, uh, the, the 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 number of such cases than the, the kind of a, in principle difference here. You could argue uh, that in recent years, European countries have restricted religious freedom in a way they hadn't before, uh, limitations on uh, kosher and halal slaughtering, for example, um, and, and, and other things. Um, is that a change in principle, do you think, or only in practice? Um, that, that's kind of a, a tough question. Um, I would I would say the latter because it's not that um, the European Union um, has decided, as a matter of principle, that religious um, needs um, shouldn't have this kind of privileged status anymore. This status I was I, I was referring referring to earlier when I talked about the, the right to religious freedom. So um, it's still a, a special right. So uh, having a right means that you have a kind of a specially strong claim vis-à-vis uh, -vis your state uh, when it comes to some some religious needs uh, that you think are um, are not accommodated. Uh, so in, in that sense, it's it's more a matter of a a change in practice and in, and in the particular balancing uh, so it's kind of um, I mean I, I, we could talk about it but I think um, from the point of view of those those supporting um, the ban on um, um, kosher slaughtering and so on so it's more becoming more aware of what changing the, uh, the view regarding Animal rights and so on. This this has become kind of a, a much bigger issue than it used to be, and therefore, this becomes a case where, with all respect to religion, 
um, we, we can't kind of compromise. Uh, we can't accommodate that, that religious need. So it, it's more about the, the change regarding animals than about religion. I see. So it's the relative weight of different values. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, Let's talk for a bit about freedom from religion. Uh, In the United States, the fastest-growing religious group are those who identify themselves as nuns, no religious affiliation. In Israel, a large segment of the population is secular, although they do identify as Jews. Uh, Now, there are those who would say that freedom from religion is the flip side of freedom of religion in democracies, but you look at it differently. Tell us about your view of the individual's right to freedom from religion, Um, and you can refer to the example you use in the book, however you want to express it. Sure. So, so from a, from a theoretical point of view, even the freedom um, of religion is a kind of a puzzling. Um, um, why, why is it exactly that believers, religious believers, are entitled to special protection for their practices when it happens to be incompatible with the with with laws or rules which are generally applicable and which were not made up uh, in a kind of a campaign against religion. There's not, nothing anti-religious in them. There's just the, these, this law that was made and, and now it happens to be incompatible with some religious practice. So why exactly should we grant the, the religious an, an exemption? So that's that's a big question. And, and our answer in general is that uh, in most cases it has to, has to do with respecting the, the believer's conscience. So the thought is that um, for believers, uh, the religion is, is very important. It, what, what's, it, it is what defines them um, as, as individuals. It's very central to their identity. And therefore... Uh, to to make a, a, a believer act against his or her uh, deepest beliefs is a kind of attack on their conscience or attack on their integrity. And that's why they, we, we grant them this special protection. Now, if that's the case, uh, then with this in mind, we, we should move to freedom from religion. So let's say um, we, we make a law on the basis of religious uh, considerations that uh, bans the, the growing of pigs in Israel or, or maybe um, the serving of pork in restaurants or something like that. Okay, so um, this, of course, is, is, is a significant restriction on liberty and there's the good arguments against it. But the question is whether the... the Pork eaters have an additional claim, um, in addition to the general liberal claim they have, uh, that their liberty to eat whatever they want is, is restricted. Is the fact that this um, 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 prohibition um, based on religion is does that particular fact add to the moral problematics or severity? 
of the prohibition. Um, and here, we don't really see why this should be the case. So, so let's say uh, that uh, the same prohibition exactly would be imposed for non-religious reasons. Let's say for some, some theory about animal rights we just mentioned earlier. Um, and actually, there, there are uh, these uh, prohibitions on, on eating certain um, animals. That's, I think in Israel it's, it's illegal to e- e- eat dogs, um, to kill dogs and eat them. I think it's illegal, I'm not entirely sure. But, but definitely in other countries, there are certain types of animals that the law forbids eating, killing or killing in order to eat, or or serving in restaurants or stuff like that. Um, so so let's assume that it, it's the same prohibition exactly on the, the same kind of food, uh, just this time on non-religious uh, grounds. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the fact that the the basis of the prohibition is in one case religion and in another case it's, let's say, some philosophical view about animal rights shouldn't make a difference in terms of the, the protection granted to the individual. So in, in, in that sense, um, I don't think people have a, a, a right to freedom from religion. The very fact that some law originated from religion which means that it was based on religious considerations. This very fact um, is, isn't enough to to grant um, some some citizens a special right against it. So um, that doesn't mean we completely reject this notion. Um, I think this notion would apply in in cases where there's something analogous to cases where the believers. Um, forced to act against his or her conscience. So we need to find cases where some law um, seeks to force the secular to act against their conscience. Um, So an example might be something like um, the law that still exists in Israel, unfortunately, that forces um, all, all, um, all Jewish citizens to get married through the rabbinate. Um, so, um, arguably, a, a, a young couple who, let's say, are completely secular and feel very much alienated from from Jewish law and from the, the rabbis and so on, so to force them to participate in this religious ritual, uh, maybe even... Uh, uh, to force them, you know, to, to, to force the uh, the groom to wear a, a yarmulke on his head and maybe say some kind of bless, religious blessing and maybe force the bride to go to the mikveh to purify herself. And so all, all this, I think, uh, could be seen as analogous to cases of for, forcing the religious to act against their conscience. So I would think that in these cases where the the secular are forced by law to participate in an active way uh, in a religious ceremony, a religious ritual, those would be the the cases where um, this idea of freedom from religion would apply. And I 
just want to add that it's not just the Jews in Israel who can only marry through their religious community. Uh, the, the, the other religions, Muslims, Christians, uh, and minority religions, uh, also there's no, there is no civil marriage. You can only marry through your religious community. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely true. Yeah, the, th- the interesting thing is that um, Muslims, Christians, and so on in Israel are by and large not bothered by that. It's interesting. Um, most of them, I mean, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of them, are, if not happy, um, you, you, you can't hear any real opposition. Uh, they seem to be quite happy. To, let's say the um, Arab Christians in Israel they get married in, in, in a church. They see it just as a matter of culture. Uh, they don't see it as anything uh, deeply reli- religious. And the same with, with Muslims. It would have to do with the fact that uh, most Israeli Muslims would define themselves either as, either as religious or at least as what they call traditional. Uh, you won't find many Israeli Muslims who would define themselves as, as secular but even if you would, I think most of them would get married um, if they get married um, in a kind of re- a religious uh, ceremony and wouldn't opt for the option that many young uh, Israeli Jews opt for, which is you know, to take a weekend in Cyprus and get a civil marriage from there. You, you note in the book very reasonably that the, the state promotes and supports its notion of the good in in many ways, from health and safety to culture. So why not religion? Uh, and, And you respond in the discussion of it that health and safety are rational. But of course, as we see today with vaccine skepticism, that may be rational, but they're not universally accepted. And, of course, cultural values are even more debatable, uh, gender equality, for example, or issues in education, which are extremely complex. So is religious coercion, I put that in air quotes, uh, different from other governmental coercion? Yeah, so um, I think philosophically this is the the most kind of interesting um, issue uh, in this area. And there's a lot of writing there. Um, so th- there's a very common thought among liberals that, that it is different, that uh, religious coercion is is uh, particularly problematic um, and that no decent liberal can support that, regardless of the kind of coercion. Even if the coercion is relatively light, uh, the very fact that it's religion coercion is, is problematic. Um, and uh, we take a different line in the book, so, so I think, but first of all, um, I think we should be clear about uh, what we mean by religious coercion, uh, because the very fact that some law um, fits religion doesn't mean that it was motivated by a, a re- religion uh, motivation, um, which is the, the, the main issue uh, on the table, whether... whether whether the religious motivation is, is problematic. Um, so, um, I mean, in Israel, which is uh, often referred to as a state where there's a lot of religious coercion, so um, 
I think when you look at the actual laws referred to, uh, many of those who support these laws, especially the secular who support those laws, supported in the fact in in uh, in the past when they were actually made these laws. Um, sincerely believed that these laws w- were justified on kind of a national grounds, okay? So, um, even in, in the years before the state was established, um, many many people, um, I mean, many, many Jews thought that the, the Sabbath, the, the Shabbat in Israel, as a Jewish state, should have a special atmosphere, um, which isn't necessarily exactly what uh, the halakha, Jewish law, requires, but still uh, should be different than a regular day. Um, And uh, so the the secular politicians or thinkers who supported all kinds of um, restrictions uh, on, on, let's say, um, working on Shabbat and so on, um, sincerely did so for um, what they saw as kind of cultural um, national um, reasons, and um, and this also has to do with the idea of Jew- uh, Israel as a Jewish state. So, as a Jewish state, it sh- should have um, some kind of a, a a a kind of public public character, which which should which should uh, express its its Jewishness, um, not because this is something that God commanded, um, or that you know the rabbi said. It's just because we're Jews, and this is how you know Jews uh, live. Um, and actually, even from from the religious point of view, uh, when you look at the actual laws, they often many of them don't really make sense if you judge them from a religious point of view. So think of um, of uh, let's say public transportation on on the Sabbath. It's something we talk about we talk about in, in the book. So. From a, a strictly um, halachic Jewish law point of view, doesn't really make sense um, to um, outlaw public transportation while allowing private transportation. If anything, then from a, a, a the point of view of, of halacha, it's it's better um, to have uh, people taking a bus and let's say. Fifty people, t- uh, you know, driving, uh, riding uh, on a bus instead of fifty cars. Um, so, all, so I think very clearly in this example, the the Orthodox who support uh, this prohibition on public transportation, what really what really motivates them is is not a coercion in the sense of. Um, Making other Jews' behavior compatible with what God wants them to do, but rather an, an attempt to shape the public sphere in in ways that be compatible with the kind of the atmosphere of of the Sabbath. Um, so even even if um, one accepted that religious coercion, uh, in the strict sense of the word, is problematic, which we deny. I think um, when you look at the actual cases, most of them are different. So um, n- nobody would deny that it's okay for for countries in general, for Israel in particular, to impose all kinds of restrictions um, in the public sphere because the state has 
its own character. So, uh, for instance, uh, you have some some holidays, so you don't allow traffic in some in some streets for that holiday. Not 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 for the Sabbath on on the Sunday or or, or whatever. Or you have some parade, or you, or you close um, some some road and have a, a, a promenade there. Um, uh, just uh, uh, um, uh, just for the sake of the holiday or, or, or whatever. Now it's true that from our, our point of view, even if some law is 100% based on re- religious considerations, something like, okay, we want this um, law passed because we believe that this is God, what God wants or something like that, um, I don't think it can it can be ruled out a priori. I don't think that the very fact that the law is based on religious considerations makes it in some way I- I- um, illegitimate um, or, or indecent or unfair or anything of that kind. And this has, has to do with the, with the point that um, I don't think we, we, there's any reason for us to accept in this discussion um, a priori that religious considerations in comparison to non-religious ones are in some sense irrational or non-rational, while all other bases for laws are rational. And even if people don't agree with them, if if only they thought hard about it, they would agree. I just don't think this is the case. There are many laws that many, many citizens don't agree with, deeply don't agree with, um, and still, no, nobody thinks that the fact they don't agree with makes these laws unfair or illegitimate or anything of that kind. And, and there's also the uh, the argument or the pressure from uh, the values, liberal values, of being a, a good neighbor that is not disturbing someone else's religious practice. So there, there is that argument that if opening your store or driving a bus down a particular street will be disturbing to the culture, religious or other, of the people in that neighborhood that day, one ought to uh, restrict oneself in accommodation to that. Um, that. That seldom gets into the argument, but I think in real life it operates that way. Yeah, I think it does get into the argument quite often, especially when, I think, when we think about um, religious um, areas, uh, neighborhoods, or settlements, and so on. So, um, so um, I'm, I live in a kind of a, a relatively small place in the in the in the in the Galilee, which is defined as religion as religious. Um, so there are no cars here um, that that can. Um, Drive in or through the the place on Shabbat. Um, what justifies that? So I think it's a matter of respecting the right of a community to shape its public sphere to an extent. Now this depends on all kinds of conditions. Uh, uh, for instance, the uh, extent of um, restrictions that imposes on on others. Um, how much this is, this is important for the community, and so on and so forth. So um, I think you're, you're absolutely right that um, when, when you think of um, neighborhoods or areas which are 
let's say almost 100% um, religious, then they have a, a stronger claim um, for consideration. Um, so it, it, it has to do with, with, with the transportation or traffic on, on, on Shabbat and so on. On the other hand, if, uh, if it's a main road running through the neighborhood and the, the, the meaning of closing this road would be a very heavy burden on the, uh, the other um, um, citizens, then maybe we wouldn't be able to give them this accommodation. If uh, if liberal, democratic, and secular ideals were a product of a particular time, the Enlightenment, uh, what are the implications of this time, the postmodern and, one might say, the post-secular era on the relationship between religion and state? Um, I'm not sure I entirely understand what you mean by this. Well, there, there, there was a, a breakthrough philosophical out, outlook in the Enlightenment period, um, where from which liberal democracies and secular thinking grew: um, individual freedom, uh, notions of uh, of the polis that didn't come down from God or the king. Uh, but now we live in, in a postmodern time where the idea of what is correct isn't necessarily based on evidence or on reason. So I'm just asking you to reflect, if you would, on what the implications of postmodernism are for the relationship between religion and state. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I don't completely buy that we live in a postmodern world. Um, oh, okay. Say say some more about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> so, what exactly postmodern is is a question. You know, it's, it, it is uh, it, it refers to m- many views. I think what they share is a kind of skepticism about uh, truth or something like that. Um, um, and I just think that um, most people don't really believe that skepticism. Okay, uh, uh, when they're on guard in some philosophical discussion, they might throw these ideas in the air. But when they're off guard, and we talk to them about uh, fairness of, philosoph- of political arrangements, uh, about what should be done, what shouldn't be done, and so on, they have very, very clear ideas. Um, and they, they present arguments, they try to bring evidence, empirical evidence, philosophical evidence. Um, so th- this kind of skepticism is, is reserved to the kind of philosophical seminar, uh, but uh, people don't really buy into it. Uh, and what, That's what a relief. I, uh, yeah, it is. I, I, I completely agree. And my um, my view on this is very much influenced by the late uh, uh, philosopher and um, and lawyer um, Ronald Dworkin, who um, fought against this skepticism all his life, but also thought that people weren't really serious about it in a sense. Uh, so it's really very interesting to see this this difference. That when 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 you, when you ask, them, ask people about you know truth or you know these abstract terms. 
they come up with all these <coughs> um, half arguments that uh, no, it's all relative and subjective and so on. Um, right. And then um, a day later, when they're off guard and you talk to them about, you know, it's, it, you, you say to them, did you hear about this? You know that the the ultra-Orthodox, the, the Haredim have passed. Isn't that outra- outrageous? So they don't say to you, well, who knows what's outrageous? It's all subjective. <laughs> no, that's not their reaction. <laughs> they have a very strong view. Um, so I'm, I'm not I'm not very impressed by um, the 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 impression um, often conveyed that um, people in, in in the way people think about political issues they don't really believe in truth or, or something like that. Well, I'm I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> what about context, specifically geography? Um, it, does or should that make a difference to the meaning of uh, the relationship between religion and state? Uh, what I mean is, uh, Israel is in the Middle East, where all countries are religious, Islamic, uh, and none are democratic. Uh, should the weight and balance of your arguments be different for countries in, for example, North America compared to the Middle East? Uh, that's that's a nice question. I never thought of that. Um, interesting. Um, I mean, my, well, my gut well then I've that, succeeded. <laughs> Good. I'm uh, glad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, my my gut reaction is, is that it, it shouldn't make a difference. So um, this has to do with the fact that um, modern states are, to to a large extent, kind of self-contained entities uh, that can and usually run their own affairs, um, including the, 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 the way they, they regulate issues of state and religion, regardless of what other countries do around them. Um, so, I mean, th- think of other rights or, or, or issues, so, um, or let's say, um, issue concerning gender and, ge- and gender equality. So, probably in all the countries around us, there's there's much less gender equality than, than in Israel. That that shouldn't provide us with any reason um, to kind of try to be kind of more similar to our neighbors. Uh, we might try to influence them, but uh, uh, this is not not something we would like to imitate. So, see, I think the same here. We, we should we should we need to think about um, the. The right reasons and the, the the way to be to behave and to regulate the issues of state religion uh, in in accordance with our, our best understanding within Israel, and I think we we, we can completely ignore the way um, Egypt or Sudan or Iraq um, or whoever um, the kind of arrangements that exist over there. But that, I think I, I would take your question. Um, to the domestic context, um, and, and with a little twist, and I, I would reformulate as the question of the relation between the local and the national. The question is whether, whether and to what extent, issues of state and religion should be decided upon on a national level or on the local level. 
and that's I think an issue we didn't take up in the book uh, uh, enough and it's really interesting um, on the one hand uh, you think that these are kind of in principle questions so it should come from you know, the Knesset the uh, national level on the other hand it, it would make a lot of sense to say that the the the, the local government um, should local authority they, they should decide they, they know their uh, exactly the, the kind of communities they have in, in their own city or region um, and they can make their own accommodations and compromises and so on and therefore maybe we should leave some of the decisions to the local uh, l- local bodies. Does the size of the religious minority who is receiving special accommodation, should that be, make a difference? For example, the Amish in America have some very special accommodations that nobody else has. They don't have to participate in Social Security, the national insurance, for example. But they are a tiny minority in a big country. So um, talk about the special arrangements made for the ultra-Orthodox at the time of Israel's founding and the challenge today when they're now about 12% of the country's population. Yeah, so I think this is um, precisely right. Um, The smaller the community, usually the easier it is to accommodate the requests. Um, So... Uh, think about pacifists. So when you have a very small group of, of pacifists, it's very easy to, to grant them all an exemption um, and be very, very generous um, with them. Um, however, um, if you have a very um, big group, of uh, a large group of citizens who are pacifists, then... It, uh, granting all of them um, an exemption would make it very hard for the country um, to run its army and to accommodate uh, all its security needs and therefore it would be much harder to grant them all exemption. So the same would apply to these religious issues as well. I think you're absolutely right with the, with the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, so the the the, the um, the bigger this community becomes and the, the stronger they get politically, the, the weaker their, their claim for special protection. And, and what kind of uh, accommodations or support do the religious minorities in Israel receive? About uh, 18 or 20 percent of the country uh, are Muslims, Christians, and uh, Druze. Yeah, right. So, so in terms of religious freedom, they they enjoy um, the same kind of protection as granted to Jews, uh, because this is a a a right granted to individuals respecting their conscience. So, in that in that sense, there's no there's no difference. There's no significant difference in terms of state support. As as we talked earlier, I think. Uh, in the last, let's say, two decades, there's growing understanding that they should be receiving an equal share 
I mean, in accordance to their their size, um, in the um, the budget um, allocated for religious causes. Um, so, for instance, there was a, a very famous petition uh, to the Supreme Court regarding um, the funding of Muslim um, cemeteries. Um, the claim being that they were funding, funded less than Jewish ones, and, and the Supreme Court completely accepted it and, and said that they should uh, be get, be funded just as Jews in according accordance to their relative size. So I, th- I think that's w- that's where we're 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 going to. But uh, nonetheless, I should say that um, in this issue of um, funding religion and, and and caring about religious freedom. As in other fields, um, it's still, I think, by and large true that Israel still doesn't completely see the non-Jewish citizens as completely equal. Um, So when they think of religion, they they think mainly about Jews. Um, So um, you need to kind of make a special effort to make it clear to the decision makers or to, or to the courts that we have a problem here, and when when the decision makers or the courts realize that there is a problem, they, as I said, they they they, they rule that there should be equality. But I think that there's more kind of education to uh, kind of educational um, effort efforts uh, to be made among Israeli Jews to realize that hey. Uh, this is a Jewish state, but there, you know many, many, many Muslims here and Christians and Jews, and they need to be accommodated as well. Uh, finally, Danny, uh, you make a number of recommendations for policy changes uh, at the end of your book. Some of them quite wi- wide ranging, from uh, marriage and divorce to. Uh, the requirement of teaching basic skills, the core curriculum in in uh, religious schools. Which of your recommendations do you think have the best chance of being accepted in the near future? Um, well, maybe public transportations on 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 the Sabbath is now actually. Happening, um, there was something in the, today's newspaper about it. So um, we're not entirely there, but I think that's where we're going. It's it's go, it's going to happen. Uh, maybe not completely. Maybe maybe not the regular lines, but it's going to happen. Um, if you if you ask me what for me would be the most important thing right now, um, I would think that. A, a, a reform in the laws of margin divorce, uh, but unfortunately, I I don't see that forthcoming. Forthcoming, I don't see that forthcoming, um, and this has to do with, with a kind of a, a kind of a curious fact that um, it just for those who should care about it are, are young secular couples um, who. Who don't uh, who don't want a religious marriage, but the thing is that they 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 discover that they can live together and start families and have kids without being married. 
um, under the legal arrangement of what we call cohabitation, or in Hebrew, yiduim betzibur. So a, Com- an increasing common number, law. Yeah, exactly. So an increasing number of uh, young secular couples don't even uh, trouble themselves to go to Cyprus and get a civil marriage from there. They just um, give up on the um, official definition of marriage and and the, the sky hasn't fallen and everything is fine. So there's no kind of push, uh, there's no pressure from, from those couples on their politicians to br- make this a you know, a, a condition for joining the coalition or, or anything of that kind. Um, so that's why I don't think any change here is forthcoming. Um, regarding the, the teaching of core curriculum in the ultra-Orthodox Orthodox schools, there we might see some change, but this um, would be contingent on the continuation of the present coalition, and, and who knows what happens there. If, if this coalition manage, manages to um, complete its term, its whole four years, then then maybe we'll, 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 we'll start to see a beginning of a change uh, in this field. Well, you've really helped clarify the sometimes controversial uh, relationship between religion and state for us. Uh, Before I let you go today, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now and what's next for you? Um, Well, there are several things on my my table right now. Um, One of them is a project on um, the notion of objectification. This has nothing special to do with state and religion. Um, um, I try to um, see whether this notion of objectification, which is so central in in feminist philosophy, whether it makes sense, and especially whether it manages to to, um, explain um, the aggression, hostility of men against women in, in, under certain conditions, um, I, I, I analyze a, a, a list of empirical studies that have pointed to some causal connection between what the researchers call sexual obje- objectification and the various forms of hostility and aggression against women, and I criticize these studies and try to offer my own account. Well, that's a very important topic and much needed. Uh, I'll keep my eye out to look for your publications in that arena. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer series on ideas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform.